Hey everyone, welcome back to the Westbridge Church Podcast. To learn more about Westbridge Church, including our service times, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com. This week's message comes from Pastor Tyson Harold, and we hope it encourages you to take your next step in your faith journey. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you're online, thanks for watching online with us. But uh, one of the great joys in life is if you have online baking, you get a text message that tells you when your paycheck hits. Anybody have that? That is one of the great joys. And even though you know it's coming, it's still like such an encouragement of like, oh my goodness, there it is. Well, I want you to pretend for a minute with me that tomorrow you get a text that says that you get $86,400 dropped into your bank account. What would you do with it? How would you spend that money? The the catch is, though, if you get that money, you have to spend it all in one day, and you can't carry over any to the next day. So you get $86,000, $86,400, what would you spend it on? And if we went around the room, I have a feeling that for many of you, you'd immediately say, I'm going to pay off my car. I'm going to save for college. I'm going to go buy uh, tickets to Disney. You may have a, a whole list of ideas of what you're going to do with that $86,400. Now, the bad news is, is that you're not getting that tomorrow. Um, but the good news is, is that you're getting 86400 of something, and it's 86400 seconds in your day. Why is it that it's so easy for us if we had the money, we would have immediately the idea of what we'd want to do with it, but when we think about it, we're not promised tomorrow, but most likely... Uh, For most of us, tomorrow, we're going to wake up with a full 86,400 seconds. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? Because for about a third of that, you're going to be sleeping. And then about, depending on who you are, some of you will spend a third of that on Netflix. And some of you will spend a third of that working. And so you're left with a, a rather minuscule amount of time. And we just often don't, at least for myself, don't find myself planning out what to do. Of course, I have my schedule. It's a Monday. I have things to do. But it's so easy when we think about money to go all the things that we would want to do with it, but we have time that's coming our way every single day, and so how do we make the most of it? Because tomorrow you'll get 86,400 seconds to spend, and the question is, what will you do with it? If you remember last week, we were in Acts chapter 16. This week we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. We've been making our way through the book of Acts, especially looking in this middle section where Paul seems to make the most of every opportunity that he has. Colossians 4, 5, we looked at this last week, but I want to remind you again, it says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. If we're going to make the most of every opportunity we have, we have to understand that we have a finite amount of time, that there's only so many hours in the day, and that for most of us, as, as John mentioned earlier in the, in the, sermon, or in the uh, service here, that you will reach people that I will never come in contact with. And each one of us will reach people that none of us could ever reach. And so if we're going to be wise in the way we act towards outsiders, if we're going to make the most of every opportunity, we have to understand we have a finite time and that we can't just leave it up to chance and to what God may do. We've got to take advantage of the opportunities that we have. Paul did this and he showed us last week he was in the midst of a prison. That's where he was for the day. He didn't choose to go there. He wasn't excited about going there, but he just happened to be there. He made the most of every opportunity, and we looked at that as he was in a prison in Philippi. This week, he's in Athens, 
And he gives us probably the clearest picture of how to engage a culture maybe there is in all of Scripture, and excited to, to jump in that with you as well. So last week he was in Philippi. If you want to look at the map behind me here now, it'll show you that on his second missionary journey, he was in Philippi up there at the top middle. He makes his way down to Thessalonica, and when he gets to Thessalonica, a group of thugs come together and they run him out of town. So Paul says, look, I'm going to make the most of this opportunity as well. I'll go to Berea, which is just south of there, and he ends up in Berea. Well, what happens? The people who were the thugs in Thessalonica went and chased him down into Berea, and then finally Paul's like, I got to get out of here, and he makes his way over to Athens. It's interesting, he was waiting for Silas and for Timothy to join him, and he says, I'm going to make my way down to Athens. That's essentially Acts chapter 17, where we pick up today in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. If you would follow along with me, it'll be on the screen behind me or uh, join with us. But Paul had spent some time there on that particular second missionary journey, and he really was trying to make the most of every opportunity he had. People just didn't let him do what he wanted to do. And so he finds himself in Athens, and it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, and day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you proclaim, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives, himself, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this, Paul. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, as well as Damaris and a number of others. So Paul, we pick up in Acts chapter 17, halfway through, he had left Berea, and Silas and Timothy were going to catch up with him. And as he's there, he could have easily sat on the coast and enjoyed the, the great architecture. He could have sat there and just spent time just getting recharged and, and, and refilled, but he didn't. 
It says in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, that as Paul did this, he walks around and he's looking at the culture. He seeks to understand this culture and what is happening. As he was waiting for them, he was greatly distressed to see that it was a city full of idols. He reasoned with them and started to talk with the people that he was around. He was going to make the most of every opportunity that he had. And what's interesting is he finds himself waiting for Silas and for Timothy. He goes around and he sees all these idols and it drives him in compassion and also frustration to see that these people are spending their lives on things that don't matter. They're wasting their time. So he begins to reason with them. In our culture, it is becoming more and more difficult to have a conversation with someone. But it's not impossible. One of the great equalizers is relationship. And oftentimes when you have a relationship with someone, you can have a discussion that perhaps you couldn't have before. It's interesting, Paul's typical order of events would be that he'd go into a town, find a synagogue, and then start to explain how Jesus was the Messiah. He does that in Athens, but then he takes it a step further and he goes out into the marketplace where the people are. He doesn't just stay with the people who are in the synagogue. He goes out and finds the people. It's estimated that in the United States that 85 million people will not darken the door of a church. So it stands to reason that if we're going to reach people, we're going to have to go to where they are too. We can't just assume that they're going to come in here. And so Paul does this, sets the example for us, makes the most of this opportunity, and helps them understand what is going on. If we're going to make the most of every opportunity we have, we have to understand the culture in which we're trying to reach. Why do they do what they do? What are they looking for? Why do they spend their time doing the certain activities they do? This is what Paul did. He goes into this town. He has who knows how long to spend there, and he immediately starts and notices because obviously, if you know anything about Athens, it is a city full of statue after statue after statue, monument after monument after monument. This is where the home of the Acropolis is, where all the temples were. And as he goes around, he sees that these people are striving for everything they they think is God, but it's not. And so if we're going to make the most of every opportunity we have, we have to understand the culture we're trying to reach. Our culture is changing at a rapid breakneck speed. In the, I don't remember who said this, but in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and early 70s, we kind of experienced in the United States what would be called an Acts 2 kind of experience, where people could preach about Jesus Christ and people would repent and and believe and that was just because they had the foundation of who God was. They were moral people who who sought to really do the right thing. But since then in the 70s, 80s, 90s and, and up through today, we are living in an Acts 17 culture, a culture that has really no knowledge of God or if they do have knowledge of God, it's much like the people in Athens that had a distorted view of God. And so we come at our culture, for many of you who grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, that is not the culture we live today. And while the gospel never changes, our methods have to, and our understanding of it, we can't just assume that they'll come to church. We've got to go out and reach them where they're at. We can't just assume that they know who Jesus is. We've got to explain who he is. And we can't just assume that as they're walking about their day, they even have any knowledge of who God is. So we have to start from a very base understanding of our culture and just assume that no one knows anything (laughs) because there's such a distorted view of God in the people of Athens, and I have fear that's probably the way our culture is as well today. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. There are some incredible opportunities in our culture today to point people to Jesus. This is not a lost cause. Uh, Jesus is not deterred because some people don't know about him. 
And this is what excites me most about the days ahead. I was reading an article this past week called The Coming Millennial Midlife Crisis and Why It Will Be Worse Than Any Ever Before. And the article went on to, to argue, basically, that the millennials were the group that, you know, for many of you, that would have been from like the mid-80s on, basically would be considered a millennial. This group was told they were special their entire life. They were given participation trophies for everything. They were bent on, on changing the world, which was different from every other generation before. The, the previous generations just wanted to leave the world a little better than they found it. The millennials came along and said, we're going to change the world. Well, what's going to happen here in another couple years when they make their way into their late 30s, early 40s, and they realize that they can't change the world, that perhaps they're not that special that they thought? And the article went on to say that there, there is this impending midlife crisis that's about to hit this generation. And as I read that article, I was just struck with the fact of this is the golden opportunity to help these people see, yeah, you are indeed special. God did create you for a purpose. And that there is an opportunity for you to, to find fulfillment in life. It's probably not going to be in changing the world. It's going to be in changing your heart. And so while it's kind of frustrating, if we're honest about American culture, there's also a ton of opportunities that abound. This is also the passage for cross-cultural missions, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't remind you that we have so many faithful missionaries that I'm grateful that are serving that I hope that you're praying for. They're seeking to do this every single day, to go into a culture that they don't understand, to get to know it better so that they have the best way to share it. And, and so appreciate your support both by prayer and also financially for all of the missionaries that we have around the world. But this is where we get our call to go and do that very thing. So Paul gives us a masterclass in the next several verses about how to engage a culture that is increasingly anti-God. He points to an event in history called the resurrection. He cites people that they respect, and then he gives a clear picture of the one true God. Verse 18 says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. And then Paul throws in the side note here of, or Luke throws in the side note of all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about the latest ideas. It sounds like a college campus. If you've ever been to one, that's often what they're doing. That's about the only place I can think of in our modern world that would equate to this, but that's what they're doing. And if you had a chance to be on a college campus anytime recently, there are some strange ideas. But that's what they tell Paul. They say, hey, tell us about this and what is exactly happened. The two cultural groups that Paul is addressing is the Epicureans and the Stoics. It's helpful to know what their, what their thought process is. It's helpful to know what they think because if you're going to engage them, you, you have to understand that. The Epicureans believe that everything happened by chance that there was no resurrection, that when you died, you just ceased to exist. And so I find it interesting that Paul does, what he does is he evaluates this and goes, well, what we're going to talk about first is the resurrection of Jesus, because you don't believe there's a resurrection to begin with. The Epicureans also believe that pleasure was the highest goal, and not in a sexual sense of pleasure, but in a sense of pleasure of no pain. So this group wants no pain, which we would all be for. This group wants just to cease to exist, and you can see how easily that this translates into our culture today. A group of people that just wants to have fun, they want no pain, they just want to enjoy life, and then they just want to cease to exist. The Stoics believed that everything was God, that everything happens, you just have to accept it. 
and that every so often uh, everything must be burned up and started over with. And it's against this backdrop that Paul starts with the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything for our faith, and it changes everything for the world. Matter of fact, he tells the Corinthians later, he says, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, you're still in your sin, and your faith is useless. And so Paul starts with this culture, and he recognizes that they don't believe in the resurrection at all, that they have all these other gods, and he uses this as his jumping off point on how to engage them. They tell him that he's got some strange ideas. The council that he appears before is like their, their ruling council. And as he appears into the Oropagus, that's like their supreme court, if you will. Keep in mind, this is against the shadow of the Acropolis, which is his temples of all of these gods. And Paul is making his claim that the God that he's talking about is above every other God. So most likely you're not going to appear before a, a, a Greek philosopher this week and have to answer questions about the oddities of their thinking. But you may engage with people who have some of the same thoughts, that we just cease to exist, that there's no hope after death, that sometimes people are just bad and you just got to go with it. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 22 that he stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. You see, the Greeks believed that if they didn't appease the gods in the right way, if they didn't do the right things, their town would be destroyed. And so in particular in Athens, they had set up gods for everything you could think of under the sun. And they even, as Paul went around and looked at this, he comes away and he goes, they even have one to the unknown God just in case that we missed one. We're going to just put one here just in case so we cover our bases and make sure everything is great. And Paul says, you're ignorant of the very thing that you're, you worship. You have all these gods set up. You even have an unknown one. And I'm going to tell you about the one true God. But the interesting part of that I was reading this in my own time this past week was sometimes we become ignorant ourselves because we do this same thing. We set up idols in our lives that we think are going to satisfy and we're ignorant to the fact that they won't because we know they won't. We know that Jesus Christ is the only one that can fulfill us and sustain us. And we find ourselves going back to things that we know won't fulfill us. And so Paul says, that you're ignorant, and we become ignorant when we cling to our own idols and try and hold on to God at the same time. If we're going to make the most of every opportunity, we have to rid ourselves of idols as well. You realize that our lives shout what we really believe. They do. And if we're going to say that we trust God and that he's in control of everything, and then the moment something goes wrong, we run around like chickens with our heads cut off, it doesn't match up. And the world's going, wait a minute, I thought you could trust your God. And we become ignorant because we, we think that's the way it's going to happen. I was struck with this even last night. You know the greatest idol we face? It's us. It's ourself. We think that we're going to do enough to measure up. We're going to do enough to provide. We're going to be the best person that we are. And we end up hurting the people that we love. We end up destroying our lives in the process. All because we think we can just rely on ourselves to pull through and get through what we need to get done. The call is for the Athenians, the call for ourselves is when we run into that, is just to repent. 
I was talking with a friend of mine who's a pastor in Colorado recently, and I was like, hey, what's your, what's your greatest challenge you guys face out there? And he goes, you know, he goes, it's always been bad, but it's gotten exceptionally worse in the past few years is that everyone worships creation over the creator. And he's like, it's hard not to because you're just surrounded by beautiful creation. He goes, but it has gotten so much worse in the past couple years. And I said, well, what do, you, what do you do about that? And he goes, I guess we got to keep showing him who the creator is, that he did that, and, and just hope that, that it changes. And it was interesting as I thought about that. That goes back to self once again, that we can view the lens of, or view through our own personal lens what God is like and transform him into what we want him to be. And that's what the Athenians did. And if we're not careful, it'll happen for us as well. So there's three misunderstandings in the rest of this passage that the Athenians had about who God is, and Paul seeks to clear them up. And I want to just encourage you today that these three things are helpful to remind ourselves of as we go throughout our week. The first one he lists is in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. God doesn't live in a building. He's everywhere. He's over everything. The idea of God being sovereign, meaning he's in control of everything. This past week, we saw the James Webb telescope pictures. If you didn't get a chance to see those, you've got to go on and check those out. And they are amazing, the images that have come back from that telescope. They shout that God is in control. And as you see those images, you'll notice that there's such detail. And I was struck as I watched the interview from the people that were going through that is that they said, well, this proves that uh, that." Uh, that God is, or that this proves the Big Bang, or this proves whatever. For me, as I saw those images, I was reminded it just showed such intricate detail. There has to be an intelligent designer behind this because you look at how far away this is and how intricate this shows up. It is just amazing. God created the heavens and the earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. The Greeks thought that if we could put a temple in and contain God, that he would be okay. So the first misunderstanding that he seeks to clear up for them is that God is over everything. You can't contain him in a building. He's created everything. He's in charge of everything. And the Greeks thought, well, we'll just build a building and put him in it, and that'll, that'll make him happy. So that was the first misunderstanding. The second misunderstanding they had is that God is a provider and a sustainer. That God is a provider and a sustainer. Verse 25 goes on to say, that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. The second misconception they had, and, and he really uses the next four verses to kind of draw this out, is that God is a provider and a sustainer. He doesn't need you but he wants you. He provides for everything you need. He created you. He gave you the house that you live in, the car that you drive. He set out your life, and he knows exactly how long it lives. Ecclesiastes says that he set the eternity, eternity in the hearts of men, and he set out their times and places, and he's made everything beautiful in its time. So not only has he created everything, he's provided everything that you enjoy, and he's helping to sustain everything that you are a part of. And for the Greeks, as they looked at this, they thought, well, if we can, if we can serve him by our hands or we can, we can do this, then that's how we're going to, to appease God. And just a reminder for you and for me today, like, he, he doesn't need you. He wants you. He's not waiting for you to serve him. He doesn't need anything. 
But he wants you to be a part of what he's accomplishing, and we get the privilege and joy as followers of Jesus to be a part of what he's doing. And so you don't want to miss out on what God has for you, and I encourage you, if you're not serving in him some way, we don't serve out of duty or obligation. Hopefully, we serve out of position of love and gratitude. And so as the Greeks, they're struggling to to wrap their heads around what this looks like. He goes on in verse 27 to say, God did this, all of this. So he created everything. He provides everything. He sustains everything. So why? So that people would see in verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. James says that if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And one of the struggles the Athenians had was that they thought, well, we can just fashion a God to be like our God, and that's what we can do. And Paul says, no, wait a minute, you were designed and created by God. What makes you think that you could come up with something and develop your own God? But yet we do that all the time ourselves as well, don't we? We put a person in the place of God. We put a position in the place of God. We put our status in place of God. And so he says, you you can't do that because he's the creator. He's the provider. He's the sustainer. It's interesting, Paul, as he continues to show us what it's like to engage this culture, first off, he, he goes after the resurrection and helps them see that Jesus, that changed everything. The other interesting part as he engaged him is he starts to quote people they would recognize. He says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul was so good at connecting the dots with the culture to help them see what they were longing for. We've got to get better at that because they're giving us clues all the time. The clue for this particular culture was this was Erastus who had written a poem about the fact that we, were, we come from God. And he's like, you, you're so close. It is indeed true that we come from God. But we didn't just, we're not like wind up toy soldiers that God's wound up and just let them go. No, he wants to be intricately involved in the details of our life. Well, the Stoics believed that that's what it was, with this God created you and then you just were on your own. They were so close to understanding what God had done for them. My guess is your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers are so close to understanding what God has done for them. They just need you to come and help put the pieces together. And that is the privilege that we get as followers of Jesus to say, hey, you know what? I see that you're, you're, you're tired from struggling and trying to find significance and, and, and power and all the things that you're looking for. Can I just tell you that you don't have to do that. You're loved far more than you know. And so Paul does such a good job at helping these people connect the dots. That's what we've got to get better at. And since we're his offering, we shouldn't expect him to be something that we can uh, make or fashion. The third thing that he sought to help them understand is that God cannot be confined or controlled. They thought that we could just put him in a box. And so the first thing he wanted to do was help them see that he's the sovereign creator, that he's the provider and sustainer, and that he's not a God that you can just put in an idol or put in a temple and just assume that he's going to do what you want him to do. So Paul shows how they're different our God was from their God. Excuse me. In verse 30, he goes on to say, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given him proof of this to everyone 
by raising him from the dead. Do you, you get the clue of what he's doing here? He's, he's helping them see. He's tied the resurrection in so well throughout this entire thing. And I wish we obviously don't have everything that Paul said to the Athenians. I would love to hear all the ways that, in which he tied this together. But we get glimpses of it here where we see where he takes the resurrection and helps them see their need for him. And my hope today is if you don't know Jesus, that you would see your need for him as well. That you're not God, that you're not in control, and that the sooner you realize that, the better off your life will be. For those of us who are following Jesus, the sooner we remember that, the better off our life will be. And it's interesting that the call for all of us is to repent. So maybe you find yourself here today and your greatest idol is yourself and you recognize that maybe instead of following Jesus, you've been following yourself. The call is to repent, to change direction. Maybe you have no relationship with God and and I would encourage you the same thing, to repent and to follow him, to make him control and leader of your life. He calls for all people to change course or to repent and to put off all the things that go above God. He says in verse 32, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, keep in mind this was such a foreign idea to them. Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. There were three responses to all that Paul said. Some sneered. It says, sneered is like that raised upper lip, like, yeah, right, that's not what's going to happen. Some people sneered at Paul. Some people wanted to continue the conversation. And some people believed. It stands to reason that you're probably going to face the same responses in your life. Some people are going to sneer at you and say, yeah, right. Some people are going to want to continue the conversation. And if you're here today and you're just hearing about Jesus and you want to know more, I would love to have a conversation. There are many people that would love to have a conversation with you. Keep in mind, you're not God. So if someone, as you're seeking to share the gospel with or you're just trying to share the love of Christ with and they don't immediately respond to you, didn't happen for Paul, the greatest evangelist of all time, probably isn't going to happen for you. Be patient. Continue to love them, share the goodness of the Lord with them, and continue the conversation. And then third, some people believed. And Dionysus and Damaris apparently were well known, at least well enough known that people around the Areopagus and other parts of Athens would have recognized who they were, and they came to follow Jesus. So we've spent 1,922 seconds talking about how to make the most of every opportunity. Depending on what time you go to bed tonight, you've got a lot of time left. And my hope is is that you'll see through Acts chapter 17 that if you'll get out of your own way, you'll allow the Lord to lead you to whatever sphere of influence you find yourself in this week. And if you'll just be faithful to show up when God calls you to, he's going to lead you into some arenas that probably you know better than I do. And it was some people that you have a relationship that I'll never have a relationship with. And if we'll take advantage of those opportunities, some people are going to sneer. And some people are going to continue the conversation. But some people will believe. And so I hope and pray that you'll make the most of the time that you have. The interesting thing is about this is Paul wasn't dissuaded by this. Usually when I share with people, I'm like, well, I tried, God. Like I tried to share and they didn't want to hear it. And so I'm just done for a while. 
What Paul do? He walks out of Athens, makes his way on down to the next place, and he keeps going. Can I just encourage you, keep going. Tomorrow's a new Monday. You got 86,400 seconds. I hope you use them wisely. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your love for us, and thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. And God, we recognize that, that even he didn't get everything right, but God, there's so much of this that we can learn from. I wish we had more time to spend in Acts chapter 17 to see just how you've called us to engage the culture we're in. And God, uh, we are discouraged and we're distressed much like Paul was at the state of our culture. And so God, I pray that that would be motivation for us to love the people around us well, to be patient with the people who have no idea of what's going on in their life. And that God, instead of trying to judge them or cast them aside, that we would seek to love them. God, thank you that you've done that for us in the person of Jesus. God, I pray that if there are people here today that don't have a relationship with you, that they'd seek myself or others out to learn more about what you've done for us. God, we are so grateful for your love for us. We're so grateful for the time to spend together in your word this morning. And God, pray that uh, we would make the most of the opportunities we have this week. That you'd help us to be intentional and to plan those out. God, I pray that you'd bring a person to mind for every person in here today of ways we could engage those around us. God, if there's an idol in our life that we've set up that we're ignorant of, that we think that it's going to fulfill us, but it won't, I pray that you'd reveal that even now through your Holy Spirit to each and every person here, that we would repent and turn from that and turn back to you. God, thank you so much for your patience with us. Help us to be patient with each other as well. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be helpful for others, please be sure to subscribe or share. To experience other messages or find helpful resources, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com.